The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 74 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Realizing DC Comics is leaving a lot of money on the table by not opening a Gotham-themed sports bar called Nightwings, which serves Bane's boneless chicken wings and Dark Knight draft beer. I'm Adam. And here to dispel all those crazy rumors that I was lost in space or sucked into some sort of vacuum after that recent SpaceX shuttle explosion, after stowing away to get myself exposed to superpower gamma radiation. I'm Michael. <laughs> you are back. Oh, superpowers or no, we're glad to have you. We've had a lot of great guests along the way, but to have you on a main episode, this is excellent. The irony of this particular situation with me wishing that I had superpowers, our featured character on the cover of Wizard, this issue at number 74, suddenly now in current continuity has superpowers oh i didn't know that okay oh you're in for a treat sir okay now i did not know that development so we'll get into that soon enough okay but i feel like the fans have been writing into us saying where's michael when's he coming back but back in the day people were writing into wizard magazine with similar questions so let's open up willie lumpkin's mailbag So our first letter here, Michael, Nick Hines from Canada has a few names that he wants to mix up into new amalgams. So let's see what he has to say here. Hey, Jimmy, this letter is about the mega popular amalgam comics. I love them so much. I made up some of my own. Here they are. Milk and cheese kebab. This guy is an amalgamation of milk and cheese, Kazar, and Marvel Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris. Wow. <laughs> that, that is a mess. <laughs> that, is, that is some combination. I'll tell you what. <laughs> uh, next one here, not too bad. Steel Magnet, an amalgamation of steel and magneto. Now, is a steel magnet like a common tool? Is that something we're supposed to like? If you're using it on a construction site, you come from a construction family, Michael. Steel Magnet? I mean... If the person was a magnet, they would be attracted to steel and other metals. <laughs> so okay. It seems sort of uh, counterintuitive. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. All right, next one here, though. I'm loving this. This is the superstar, Conan O'Brien. This one here is an amalgamation of Conan the Barbarian and O'Brien from Monkey Man and O'Brien. <laughs> So not Conan, not Conan O'Brien. This is definitely Conan O'Brien in this case. That's something, all right. I feel like we got to send that over to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, his podcast, and see if he reads it. Give us a little plug on one of the most popular podcasts out there. Hey, you anyway, never know. Last so one here is uh, Brass Knuckles. 
which is an amalgamation of Wildstorm's brass and Knuckles of Sonic and Knuckles fame. That's what I can give to my kids and they will love it. So I can get behind that. I can get behind that. I'm cool yeah. with that. And then, of course, there's Jim McLaughlin's response where he gets in on the game himself. He says, you know, you could also amalgamate Brass and Monkey Man to make the ever-popular Brass Monkey. It's always funky my... monkey. Yeah, I know you're a Beastie Boys fan, Michael. <laughs> Then there's always my favorite, combining Marvel's Rhino with DC's Plastic Man to get Rhinoplasty, the technical oh. term for a nose job. Hey now. <laughs> I love how he threw that in, because he's like, some of you are dumb, and you don't know about plastic surgery. <laughs> All right, Michael, who's the next letter from? So our next one is from a writer named Jimmy O'Brien from Walton, New Jersey. We got O'Brien's all over the place here. Really? It's just, What's going on? <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Dear Wizard, seems like everyone does intercompany crossovers except Chaos Comics. Will we ever see them do one? If so, with who? Or if not, why? So here is the response. Well, according to Chaos President Brian Polito, the short answer is that we're too busy and having too much fun within our own universe to do intercompany stuff. But if we were to do them, my dream crossovers would be Lady Death, Thanos, and Darkseid. In this one, Lady Death seduces the two main meanies and pits them against one another. Okay. <laughs> That one's pretty good. I mean, it just makes sense. Thanos is in love with the Lady Death of his universe. So That's true. Fair enough. I'll buy it. Uh, and the next one would be Evil Ernie and Lobo. We do this one all violent. <laughs> just straight up. We do this one all violent with Ernie and Lobo teaming up against the world. Guess who wins? Oh, so not even a showdown between them. This is them just wreaking havoc. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> they should have thrown in Deadpool to really close up the loop on that one. Yeah, but man, <laughs> Brian Polito, you got some good ideas there. Did you ever do it? Did you ever approach Marvel? Did you ever approach DC? Ah, uh, well. So, uh, well, Michael, you know, I feel like if we did have two of the baddest bass stitches ever in comics wreaking havoc across the universe, well, it would make a headline or two. So why don't you take us in? <laughs> that hurt me a little bit. Yeah, look out. <laughs> Our top story this issue, X-Men Vertigo Style, reveals that the new creative team for Uncanny X-Men will be Steve T. Siegel and Chris Becciolo, Bacciolo, who are taking over from the departing Scott Lobdell and fan favorite Joe, I always miss this guy's name, uh, Matarera? You got it, baby. I did get it. There you go, look at that. To explain the headline title, Siegel was writing Sandman Mystery Theater for DC at this time. In addition to Alpha Flight at Marvel and Bachelo <laughs> had Bachelo, Bachelie, Bachelai, Bachelou. He became a breakout artist drawing Death, the high cost of living story with Neil Gaiman, before creating Generation X with Scott Lobdell, says Bocciolo of the new partnership, I read a Grendel Tales story that Steve wrote once called Devil in Our Midst that I absolutely loved. I knew that one day I would have to work with him. Here we are on Uncanny and I couldn't be happier. The team's first big story will involve revealing the secrets of Gambit and his ties to Mr. Sinister in a story for issue 
350 of Uncanny X-Men titled The Trial of Gambit. Adam Lynch, what creative team would have gotten you to buy X-Men comics at this time? Now, that is a good question because, yeah, I was definitely not reading. I wasn't interested. Joe Mad style didn't appeal to me. But when I think about this moment in time, what I was most into, there were two comics. Gen 13, I was just dropping because J. Scott Campbell had left, but I was reading Quantum and Woody from Acclaim Comics, and I think if we got Christopher Priest to write and we got J. Scott Campbell to draw, and of course, he, you know, he has to bring along his inker with him as well, but either way, like, I just feel like that combo would give a new tack onto X-Men because it, it would have a humorous take that was more overt. And I would like to, to have seen them turn the team on its head for a while, make fun of themselves a little bit, go into all the convoluted nature of their continuity, all that stuff, and have some fun with it. So mm-hmm. if J. Scott Campbell and Christopher Priest were together, I would have been buying it immediately. Hmm. How about you? Cool. Any thoughts? Well, you know, I'm a huge Peter David fan. And I'd love to see Peter David writing with Alex Ross drawing. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you'd have to wait six months in between issues. Yes. But... <laughs> it would be a long, long arc. It might be uh, three issues wait, long. Though. If, if they, they just like shut down X-Men for a time and just said, you'll get the trade, you know, in, in, a, yes. in a year. People be like, It'll be more. worth it. You watch. Yeah. <laughs> but next up here, speaking of Joe Matarera, the former X-Men artist officially reveals the title of his new creator-owned project to be Battle Chasers. Though he hasn't yet found a publisher, Joe Mad explains, quote, All I know is that I want to avoid the superhero formula and make it fantasy-oriented. The artist also confirms that the main characters are a swordsman, a mage, a war golem, and a young girl who he claims is the weirdest one of all. But he elaborates, quote, They exist in a world very much like Dungeons and Dragons, but this world has simplistic technology like steam power and cannons, as well as magical items. Now, in a similar fashion, J. Scott Campbell, who I just mentioned, just left Gen 13, so he provides his first look at a creator-owned title, Danger Girl. Now, it's announced that the Danger Girl series will be previewed in issue 25 of Gen 13, which actually still have polybagged. Uh, really? Yeah, it's still in there. It's just like a little insert comic. Uh, though when it's finally published, it's under the Cliffhanger imprint and Joe Mad's Battle Chasers also under the Cliffhanger imprint. So I think it was a, a short-lived, as far as I know, unless it really was a Wildstorm imprint, I guess we'll learn that soon enough. So our next story, uh, Ramita Jr. Hammers for Thor reports that John Ramita Jr. will be drawing the new Thor series that begins as part of the Heroes Return initiative at Marvel. I feel like they've been using this like Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return, Heroes something for a while now. It's getting a little bit. With what that, it's the 90s equivalent of Secret, where everything it's... in the 2000s was Secret War, Secret Invasion, secret, it was everything. Yeah. The heroes are back. Uh, uh, but we'll continue to draw the uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man as well. Says the artist, call it greed, if you will. I don't like the idea of giving up Spidey. Apparently, the amalgam title Thorian of the Asgods. Is that what it says? Really, is Asgods? Yeah, it's only one S. So (laughs) (laughs) You could really fumble that one pretty badly if you wanted to. Acted as an unintentional audition for drawing the God of Thunder on a monthly basis. Says Ramita, Tom Bravort and Ralph Macchio, not Macchio, not the Karate Kid, really liked the book, and they have been 
pestering me to do Thor. Sounds enthusiastic, doesn't he? <laughs> Peter David, Roger Stern, and David Quinn are mentioned as potential writers for the book. But when it's finally published, Dan Jurgens gets the job, returning to Marvel after his brief stint on Sensational Spider-Man a few years earlier. So he, like, does Spider-Man, does Superman, then goes back to Marvel to do Thor. That's right. <laughs> it's like, bing, bong, bong. Health insurance was confusing back then. So let me ask you a question. You've been really hard on John Romita Jr., as have I in the past. Do you think he's a good fit for Thor? Here's what I'll say. I'd rather see him on Thor than Spider-Man because to me, Spider-Man should be lithe and like athletic looking and should be, you know, really just symmetrical, but also have kind of like, you know, those, those uh, sports car lines, you know, mm -hmm. like he should look like he can sail through the air. And when, you know, Romita Jr. is drawing him, he does not. But Thor should be blocky, should almost look like an etching on some yeah. you know, piece of wood from that era, you know? So to me, I think that actually is a good fit. It might be the one place where he works. So don't pick up the current run of Amazing Spider-Man because he's the artist on it. He's back. <laughs> and, Why do they keep and, bringing it back? And people are hating on this book, like really bad because what they're doing, they're really hating on it. People are buying it because people are people. <laughs> they're loyal to a yes. character, yeah. All right. Well, uh, next up here, the Wizard Fan Awards were presented at the Chicago Comic-Con by the hilarious hosting duo of former guests on the podcast, Jimmy Palmiotti and Nelson DeCastro. And the results are reported on in this issue. This is for the calendar year 1996, but it's being awarded to them in 1997. This is... After 15,000 ballots were tallied. So, I mean, this was a major vote by readers of Wizards. So, favorite writer was Scott Lobdell. Favorite penciler was Jim Lee. Favorite inker was Todd McFarlane. Favorite colorist was Laura Allred. People love Laura Allred, man, yeah. in the comics community. They think she's great. Favorite letterer is Richard Starkings and Comicraft, who kind of had a monopoly, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Favorite ongoing series uncanny x-men you just can't beat him uh yeah, right. favorite one shot or miniseries of course kingdom come favorite publisher was marvel favorite comic merchandise x-men children of the atom video game for the sega genesis <laughs> favorite comic trading card set the onslaught marvel universe clear skybox international that's a mouthful yeah, there's a lot going on there. I still want to track down a pack of those cards. They sound actually kind of cool. Favorite editor was Bob Harris, the editor-in-chief at Marvel. Go figure. Favorite male hero, Bub. It's Wolverine. <laughs> Favorite female heroine, sugar, Rogue. <laughs> Getting into character over here. I just need that word. You saying sugar is like my voice, my ringtone for you now. <laughs> Every time you text me, sugar. <laughs> Favorite villain is Onslaught. Can you believe that? I mean, I guess he was the highest profile in 96. Favorite supporting character. This one I have a hard time believing. Mary Jane Parker? Just because she was hot? Is that the? Is that really why she won? Because there's no way people liked her in the book. Better than Lois Lane? I mean, like, I yeah. can think of 50 other names ahead of Mary Jane, personally. Pick Aunt May over Mary Jane, God <laughs> six. So, favorite Comic toy line, the Spawn Series 6 from McFarlane Toys. 
No Carlin, yeah. Uh, favorite comic-related animation project, X-Men on Fox, which had actually been canceled by that point. <laughs> really? Above animated series? Batman? Because, remember, Batman was just changing over to that new style, too. So maybe they kind of were losing some support. I don't know. Had Batman Beyond come out yet? I don't think so. I think that's like 99 or something, yeah. Uh, 99, yeah. Interesting. Favorite comic-related live-action project? The X-Files. That doesn't but, count. There's no this, way that can, it has an X in the title. Yeah, that, like, it got a comic book after the show after, existed. Come on. Like, that shouldn't count. Like Lois and Clark, The Real Adventures of Superman or Mantis. Like, <laughs> The Flash. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There are many, many years gone. I guess there weren't many choices in 97. Now, comics greatest moment of 1996, the heroes sacrificed themselves to stop Onslaught in Onslaught Marvel Universe. So there you go. That was the vote for all the fans. That's what they decided were the most important things. And uh, that wasn't the only voting being done at this point, though, Michael. Finally, Wizard polled their America Online subscribers, Fancy, and asked them, which is the toughest superhero team? The Justice League of America scored the top spot with 46%, followed by the Avengers at 22%. In third were the X-Men with 21.8%, while the Fantastic Four earned only 4% of the vote. How appropriate. <laughs> That's pretty ironic. And the bottom ranking is Gen 13 that garnered a measly 3%. The final 2% was made up of the other category. Yeah, I mean, Gen 13. <laughs> young they're, blood. They're pretty, they're not tough. Like, I get it. I get it. But uh, I mean, Fairchild is pretty durable. That's all I'll say. She gets beat up a lot in those comics. It comes out just fine. But yeah, ranking the toughest team, I, I can't argue with the JLA. I mean, when you have Superman on your team and you have Wonder Woman, I mean, just those two alone. But like uh, toughest, not strongest. Toughest, I would say like X-Force. Just because they're, they're gritty and they're, they're gritty and they're yeah. tough. Like, <laughs> but strongest, sure. Justice League, but six of one half does the other. Who would you think is your toughest? Oh, I mean, you're, you're saying X-Force, but I do think of like an image team because they tend to be so much grittier than everybody else. But if you wanted to count the citizens of Sin City, now there's a gritty, tough comic. You know, they're not super powered. But, but they're man, not a team, though. They kind of team up every once in a while, though. Like the different characters mm -hmm. find reasons to have an alliance. Not and... the next men or anything like that? <laughs> Next men are not that tough. Again, they have one female character whose skin is diamond hard and her hair is like razor blades, but everybody else is kind of, you know, they can be easily defeated. So I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was actually going back to Valiant too. And I was like, does Valiant have a super tough team? But I don't think so. You know, like they had the secret weapons, which was like their version of the Avengers, but they weren't that tough except for Exo Man War. So, oh, well, we'll leave it up to you. You guys tell us hashtag toughest team. We want to hear who your choice for the toughest team in comics is. But it's time we check out our table of contents. So Wizard 74 with an October 1997 cover date featured two different covers. The first was a Fantastic Four design by Alan Davis, who was drawing the new Heroes Return series with Scott Lobdell, while the other was Nightwing by Scott McDaniel, which it was originally intended for issue 73, 
But then Frank Miller gave them a Sin City cover. So then they were like, oh, well, I guess we're going to use that later. And so here it is. We finally get Nightwing. We get a little feature on it we'll talk about in a minute. But Michael, you said you recognize this, right? You oh, I, I, I had this issue and I have the trade that this corresponds with. I remember buying this cover because I saw like, ooh, I, I always loved this look of Nightwing and saw this cover and bought it because of that. And I was also interested in getting the issues in the trade of this particular run that this is all linked to. My memory otherwise is kind of foggy other than I do remember this like, is that Final Fantasy in, inside that, that first little? Could be. I don't know. There, there's a lot of video game. At, oh, yeah. It is Final Fantasy. Yeah, that is Final Fantasy. I remember this. Yeah, I remember oh. all of this. See, this is so rare. So this is the perfect episode for you to come back on. I had no idea. That's awesome. Now, the issue came packed with a Wizard, Chromium, Fairchild, and She-Hulk trading card, which is one of the most awesome ones. They're just back to back. Big smiles. It's great. A Howard Porter JLA poster, which is basically... It was used as a promotional poster in a larger size in the comic book stores. And then they said, ah, we'll put it in this issue for no particular reason. Uh, but it was backed by a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar. There's also a Supreme trading card, an America Online subscription disc, and a Zener. Zener. Hey, you know that Zener? You've been watching that? <laughs> In a Xena Warrior Princess exclusive comic book order form, which if I'm not mistaken, that first issue had a J. Scott Campbell cover, which is really, cool. yeah. Wow. But let's get into our first cover story here, Michael. This is a big one. This is all they could talk about. This is what Wizard had been waiting for for a year. You know, get rid of Heroes Reborn. Give us this. Heroes Return Q&A is a roundtable discussion with Mark Wade, Kurt Busiek, and Scott Lobdell about their plans to course correct the Marvel Universe by launching new number one issues of Captain America, Iron Man, The Avengers, and Fantastic Four at the end of 97, early 98. Now, there is tension in the air, however, that is mentioned in the opening paragraphs, as it said, quote, this is perhaps the first time Wade and Lobdell have been in a room together since their creative clashes while collaborating on the two X-Men books. When their partnership ended, it did not end on good terms. In fact, the two barely exchanged words when they entered the room. Oh, so we got a reality show going on here. Drama. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when Wizard asks Point Blake about their past problems, Wade explains, quote, that was when we were working on the same book, but we're not working that closely this time, which doesn't mean they're friends. It just means we don't have to deal with each other. <laughs> now, when asked how exactly they are going to reintroduce these classic characters into a world that continued on without them for a year, Busick explains, quote, the last thing we want to do is dive right into the deep end of the pool again and remind everybody that Iron Man used to be a murderer and then a teenager. We're going to focus on what's interesting about these characters instead of what was going on the last time they were in in the Marvel Universe. And then when Busick refuses to reveal the light-up for his Avengers team, Lobdell states, quote, I want it said for all the wizard readers, if the Avengers don't allow Cap in, Captain America has a place in the Fantastic Four, even if it means one of the four leaving. How hard would it be to put a four on his forehead? That's a lot of four. But I, don't you love that idea? Because so many people have joined the Fantastic Four over the years. The idea of Cap with a four instead of the A is hilarious. But you know what? You don't even have to put it on his head. You put it right over like his star. star you know like and he can still keep the a on his head i would feel like or but... somehow change it to a four-pointed star instead of a five-point <laughs> 
Now, speaking of Marvel's premier super teams, Busick clarifies that, quote, the Fantastic Four are explorers. The Avengers are defenders. The Avengers don't get together and say, quote, let's explore the negative zone. The Avengers get together during a crisis or when something is threatened. The Fantastic Four are following Reed's scientific curiosity. I love how succinct his explanation of them is because that's something I never considered. Like, yeah, how do the teams act differently? Like, what are their right. motivations? I know you don't think about that as often. This leads, though, to a heated debate between the writers about who would win in a fight between the Avengers and Fantastic Four. And for like a couple paragraphs, they're just nerding out and like yelling at each other. But the group finally concedes to Busick's point that, quote, Captain America is the god of winning. Bring in the DC universe, bring in Image, bring in the Mets. Captain America is the last man standing. Lobdell follows up hilarious with quote i mean cap even survived rob liefeld oh, oh my god <laughs> that the group to erupted laughter they say so fantastic <laughs> so when asked to sum up the tone of their respective titles wade says plainly captain america's high adventure lobdell describes the fantastic four as a family of adventurers getting into one huge adventure after the next while Busick describes his avengers as quote big splashy cosmic adventures as the backdrop to earth's mightiest melrose place <laughs> can't get more 90s than that that's really it's a deep cut <laughs> so i gotta ask you michael just looking at the comics that were coming out through the 80s through the early 90s the stuff you would have been reading the captain america and all those things do you think that in continuity evolution of those characters for those 30 years maybe like damaged their brands or made them so boring that they needed the heroes reborn kind of heroes return reset like do you think it was a good thing <sighs> I don't. I don't. Like, I remember issues of Captain America, like, from the late 80s, early 90s. And the way he was drawn and the way he was, like, he always was just Superman, like that thing you aspire to be, you know? And I feel like the heroes are born in particular, like, the way he's drawn, as we we said once before, with cap boobs and everything. (laughs) And then just, like, I feel like they, they forgot what to do with Captain America after a while. When there wasn't any war, they don't know what to do with him. That's why I feel like in, you know, in the MCU, they sort of figured out how to utilize Captain America in what he's meant to be as like a symbol. And I feel like the 90s in particular didn't know what to do with him. That's why they eventually, you know, in the early 2000s, reboot him, kill him, and, you know, do all different crazy things, make him Hydra at one point. And, well, it, it kind of sounds like your answer is yes, then we did need this because when I look at it, I say, I think we took all those characters for granted. They were taking really big swings that didn't work, like they mentioned about Iron Man, where he was at at that point. And the Avengers were all, you know, the leather jacket Avengers. and like So so to me, I just feel like it's almost one of those things that's like you had to take it away to make people realize they cared. To to kind of look at it and say, oh, we want it back the way they were. But you weren't buying it. Okay, we'll buy it this time. We promise. (laughs) (laughs) We'll support what we say we want anyway (laughs) don't break our heroes yeah (laughs) all right but michael take us into our next story here this is very up your alley our next story is free bird and i'm not gonna like jam out and play free bird (laughs) for like nine minutes 
is a conversation with writer Chuck Dixon and artist Scott McDaniel, the creative team who had made the Nightwing solo series a success. According to Dixon on how the former Boy Wonder finally got the green light to fly free from Gotham City because he was the most popular character in the DC Universe without his own series. We'd get letters constantly saying, when is he going to get his own book? I think we waited until the proper time. It's mentioned that Grayson was fired as Batman's sidekick after he was shot by the Joker in the 1980s, which led him to forge his own crime-fighting path with the Teen Titans, finally adopting the Nightwing persona in 1984. Really? It was 1984? Wow. I know. That seems so early, doesn't it? I thought it was like 87 for some reason. Yeah. Like, like around crisis. But even after taking on the mantle of the Batman for a time, Grayson was still considered Batman's old partner by most fans. But as Chuck Dixon puts it, when you read nightwing it's not batman jr this is a completely different guy he grew up seeing this brooding self-tormented guy all the time i think dick made a conscious effort to say i'm not going to let it eat me alive the way bruce has dick grayson is not that much of a masquerade whereas bruce wayne is the complete sham dick knows that you gotta take the costume off once in a while and go to a movie Love that take. It's a fair argument. Yeah. So I sent you a link yeah. of the, the current thing that's going on with Nightwing. And in issue 103 of the current run, uh, they've sort of done this new thing with his costume. Mm-hmm. And they gave Nightwing superpowers. And what are they? What, what specifically can he do now? He made a deal with the devil, apparently, and has like incredible strength equivalent to that of Superman. Things with his hands, his eyes glow. He does all kinds of crazy. Well, and I, I have a question, Michael. So, like, is this the first time he got superpowers? Was he one of the lanterns during the whole everybody's a different color of lantern period? Like Batman was. Did he get a ring? He might have got a he blue ring. He had to ring. have. Everybody um, did, didn't they? I'm sure, I'm sure he got a blue ring. But, like, this is like he's bonded with the speed force, like the Flash. Oh. The, po- the powers of a Kryptonian. He gets like, it all. What? He gets everything. Like, great power corrupts absolutely I guess, you know, we'll we'll see how that goes. It's just one of those things where it's just like, I I don't know why they did this. But I mean, the costume looks kind of neat. It's sort of an amalgam of the, you know, blue and yellow suit with the collar Mm -hmm. and the blue and black suit. Yeah, when I saw the yellow on it, I was like, oh, interesting. Because, yeah, obviously we've been so used to this black and blue look, which is probably his definitive style like it's so oh, I think so great like it, it's fantastic it, and it, over the years up till now they've just like tweaked it just a little here and there yeah. it's been pretty much the same so and then well the new 52 gave it red and black which didn't people didn't love yeah well that's <laughs> for batman and robin dude like that's yeah. they just stole that from the movie <laughs> literally but yeah i just wanted to call this out because they made this huge change literally like this week they've changed nightwing and gave him superpowers that are like really powerful <laughs> We'll see how long it lasts. Yes, for sure. But McDaniel lets his artwork do most of the talking in the interview, but it's revealed that the artist has a Nightwing folder, which is a binder, not probably much unlike Adam's Trapper Keeper that he recently shared. Yeah. (laughs) Filled with 
the reference photos of New York in the 1950s that he uses as inspiration for drawing Grayson's new base of operations in Bloodhaven. Says McDaniel, it just looks so old, decrepit, and worn out. It just feels like Bloodhaven. So, yeah, so how long did you read this series, Michael? I think I have the whole thing in trade. Wow, okay. Yeah, like at least a couple, for at least the first couple of volumes. Because I know you said like in high school, you started getting out of comics, but it sounds like you bought this issue of Wizard, you saw this new Nightwing, and then you're buying it. So I, I bought this issue, I bought a, the first couple issues of the run, and then years later, it went back and bought the whole trade, I think, okay. or at least most of it. I love this. I really like, this is one of my favorite runs of Nightwing. And I like the idea of Bloodhaven, you know, as a totally different city because Bloodhaven in a way, I feel like it's almost like the Bronx or Brooklyn at the time, or maybe even like a, you know, Chicago-esque kind of place. It's gritty, but not as gritty as Gotham, but also much more low tech than Gotham as well. It's weird. And the like villains that he faces, it really makes you kind of almost forget that he was Robin in a way and let it sort of be his own thing. And, you know, Batman shows up here and there and, you know, whatever, but who cares? You don't even care about it. You just want to see his journey on his own. And I really yeah. enjoy that. I mean, I've never heard a bad thing said about this no, series. It's, it's like fantastic. universally loved. And it's one of those things I, I've only read like the first three or four issues. You caught up with it. I never caught up with it, but I, I still think, yeah, what I did read, it was a real great start. Now, Michael, this next piece is really fun. It's one of those classic wizard, you know, let's just be a little goofy. It's called Sale of the Century, and it features past guest Greg Orlando, who set out with another interviewee from the Wizard Files, Lars Pearson, to buy a collectible comic at the Sotheby's Auction House in June of 1997. With only $1,000 in their pocket to spend, the pair battled against collectors with much deeper pockets, who were buying copies of Detective Comics number 20 for like $68,500. is a steal today. <laughs> yeah, in 1997 money, though, that's insane. Or Marvel Comics number one for just $36,000 by comparison, but still, after many failed attempts at, you know, bidding, putting up their paddle, the duo successfully walked away with a copy of Detective Comics number 64 from 1942, a story in which the Joker supposedly dies at the end. I think there were a lot of those over the years. <laughs> yes. But I'm curious, Michael, have you ever been involved in a comic book auction or any other like kind of auction scenario live auction i'm sure ebay but like a live auction i've sat in the room and i've watched but i've never been brave enough to bid because i'm just like the moment i bid is the one that i win on and i'll be like oh boy <laughs> i didn't explain <laughs> that one one time i saw amazing fantasy 15 and uh, it was graded it was a low grade like a like a two or like a 2.3 but I think it went for like sixteen or seventeen thousand at one point, and or some, and this was like twenty years ago. Yeah, and I was just sitting there and I was like, "This might go all go the distance." And you're like, "What is going?" On? And uh, I was like, I just didn't have the nerve. And they started it pretty low, like like a $5,000 thing. And it just went really, really fast. I've thought about it. I would love to just if I had what I call FU money, just money to burn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it, it's for me, like, I've never been that big into having collectible comics. And so the only time I ever was part of a comic book auction was probably around 1994, uh, 1993, somewhere in there at Mile High Comics in Anaheim, California. I went in there because I was going like every other Saturday to pick up my comics anyway and uh, they were doing an auction and I was like dad can we do this and my, so my dad 
stands there with his suit and tie on and everything looking like he's got all the money in the world, right? I would nudge him. And so finally it was spectacular Spider-Man number one, you know? Wow. Yeah. From the seven, late seventies. And so I was like, dad, let's get that one. Yeah, so he was, he kept bidding and bidding and, and we got it. I think, you know, it only went at the time I was surprised for like 50 bucks or something. It oh, wasn't wow. that much, uh, but still like it was an awesome moment, a fun little bonding experience with my dad, but that's the only time I've ever tried to that's win. That's pretty something. cool though. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would love to do this. Like if, like I said, if I had just some level of disposable income and I don't, and, and I, I don't need, you know, detective, you know, or, or action or even, but like, just to be like, yeah, I want like Fantastic Four number one or like X-Men number one and be like, yeah, put it all on black. <laughs> Let it ride. Michael, now, their further adventures of the wizard staff are documented in this issue as well. There's a piece called Chicago Confidential, which is a report of their activities at the first Chicago Comic-Con after Wizard had purchased it. Now, tales of sneaking booze onto the airplane and Pat McCallum dropping ice cubes or french fries into people's clothes are just a few of the pre-convention hijinks revealed in this piece. But reports of multiple raids on the mini fridge in the rooms of Greg Orlando or Matt Sen Reicher also mentioned, so they would just run in and clear it out. In addition to Buddy Scalera apparently setting off the elevator weight limit alarm, they they were always picking on him as being fat. You look at Buddy Scalera, this is not a fat man. But they were just saying it was already full, and then he got on, and the alarm went off, and he had to get off. <laughs> now, oh as for goodness. activities on the con floor, one wizard reader who spun the Wheel of Doom at the wizard booth was tasked with sitting in Mike Waringo's lap while he was autographing comics, all the while singing I'm a Little Teapot into a <laughs> megaphone. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that Pat McCallum would dare you to do. What's funny is this would fly in the 90s. This would not fly today. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Now, Adam Kubert apparently showed up to give autographs armed with a cooler that was filled with White Castle sliders, you know, the hamburgers, which were gifted to him by a fan who read somewhere that he liked those burgers. <laughs> But Brian Cunningham apparently accepted the offer to eat one of them, and then he had Hubert autograph the burger carton afterwards. <laughs> I'd love to know if Brian still has that. I'm going to ask him. Maybe I'll tell you on the mini episode. During a panel, though, one fan dared to ask writer Jeff Loeb, who is now like a big wig over at Awesome Comics with Rob Liefeld, quote, how big of a ripoff is Agent America of Captain America, which caused a visibly pissed off Loeb to admit, quote, it's a ripoff, which is not to say that other patriotic characters like the S.H.I.E.L.D. or U.S. Agent aren't all a variation on the same theme. <laughs> I just love that he admits it's a ripoff. <laughs> we can't hide it. Steve Jobs used to say smart people create brilliant people steal <laughs> <laughs> you just improve on somebody else's idea right market it better going on here though the last thing it's mentioned that four wizard staffers led by the bullpen punching bag mark wilkowski who they're always making fun of ran into convention guest george takai at the hotel and after giving him directions to the gym they then sat and stared as the star trek icon worked out because fanboys be creeping <laughs> That's how that works. Uh, but Michael, I got to ask, you know, you've gone to a lot of conventions. I've been to a handful, but what's your weirdest convention moment? Or did you ever get in trouble like accidentally? Or did you do anything a little shady to get your fandom recognized? Well, I had a huge fight with the Funko booth one year. Oh, a huge fight. I sat in line for like four hours and then they like cut it off right before me and close it up for like 
part of it. And I went nuts. So I'm like, are you effing kidding me? Like I've been standing here for hours and they were absolute jerks. They were so mean and so nasty. And I'm like, the guy in front of me just bought 50 pops and he's going and selling them right now. I want to buy one Funko Pop. He's like, well, sir, you can come back tomorrow. And I'm like, and waste another four hours sitting here that I, I went crazy on them and they asked me to leave <laughs> well especially because you wouldn't even wait four hours for stan lee and yes. that's how into funko you were wow this, I, it was like i'm this i was so angry um <laughs> the other weird moment that i had so before i was really like akin to how the whole thing works right there's artist alley but there's also a bunch of like other vendors that are just sort of like sprinkled throughout throughout in your comic con and this like one random dude had some kind of decent art he is like talking to me whatever and as we're talking he's just drawing batman because i said i like batman and he's just drawing doodling yada 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 and we're chit-chatting i'm looking at all this stuff and then he goes here you go i was like oh thanks he goes oh that'll be fifty dollars and i said for what for the drawing i just drew for you and i was like but i didn't ask you to do what he's like well i drew this for you you said you like batman i was like yeah but i didn't say draw me something and i felt so bad that i gave the guy 50 bucks and you don't even know who it was it wasn't anybody nobody oh, <laughs> absolute no. nobody i think i still have the, the drawing somewhere i'll find <laughs> it i'll scan it but i was just yeah. like i was like what a I don't even know, yeah. like i don't even know who you are bro Learn your lesson. Don't talk to anybody you don't want to pay to yeah. <laughs> buy their stuff, man. Okay. The only thing I'll say is like when I went to the San Diego Comic Con in 1997, I just remember I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, like most of the interactions I've told a million times the Tia Carrera one, so I won't do that. I even just mentioned that recently on another uh, podcast. But uh, I will say that I remember at one point my friends and I, for whatever reason, we just needed a break. And the only seats we saw in the convention center, like lobby area, were next to this wall full of phone booths. It was the kind where you could sit and like make your call. And so we just went over there and started making crank calls. And we were doing like collect calls to these companies and all this stuff. And we were <laughs> we were just like whatever we could like put together to hope that we would find something radical and outrageous, you know. And so wow. we just just being 13 year olds, you know, that's just how it goes, you know, 13, 14, you're going to make a crank call. So we, and we, we love the jerky boys. We oh. lived for the jerky boys. So I just introduced my class to the jerky boys. Oh, no said. way. What did they think? So we, we, we were talking about like, you know, we're doing podcasting as an assignment now. And one of the students wants to do like her own show where she has her own characters. And I was just like, yeah, I do my own characters. And I was just talking and I started doing like, Donald Duck, and I just broke out into Saul Rosenberg by accident. And they're like, what the hell was that? I said, oh, that's Saul Rosenberg. And they're like, who? And I was like, who? And I was like, you guys don't know about the Jerky Boys? And they're like, no, because they're all young. Yeah. So I played a skit, and they were like, this is a base. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, man. <laughs> oh, to be young. Yeah. All right, Michael, take us into this next report. Not as many laughs here. <laughs> Reporting on the topic of creator rights, arrested development has nothing to do with the hijinks of the Bluth family, but instead, indie comics artist Michael Deanna, who over the past over the period of four years had been the subject of an obscenity lawsuit in the state of Florida due to the graphic nature of the images found in his self-published Boiled Angels anthology. The offending comic was discovered when images 
of dead bodies drawn by Diana matched bodies from an unsolved murder crime scene at the University of Florida, which caused the artist to be brought in for testing to see if his blood matched the blood found at the crime scene. This is fascinating. Though not convicted of murder, Diana was found guilty of obscene materials and sentenced to $3,000 in fines, 1,200 hours of community service, and no contact with anyone under the age of 18 and not being allowed to draw anything obscene ever again. At this time, the artist had moved to New York to avoid any further complications in Florida and continued producing his own art. As Wizard puts it, Diana's work is reminiscent of nothing so much as a sophomoric drawings of that weird guy in the back of the classroom who never pays attention. But he sure caused an uproar among the old folks of Florida. (laughs) (laughs) That is a crazy story, isn't it? It's wild. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> oh, this is one of those ones that like Brian Cunningham, when we've had him on the podcast, he like always seems to reference this. This like really shook the industry because the comic book legal defense fund paid for all his legal bills and stuff. Cause they're just like, this is a free speech thing. You can't do this. Like you can't, yeah, it's upsetting, but he's, you know, he's selling it to people just distributed himself. People would subscribe. Yeah. He would mail it out. It's not like, and I think if I remember the original story that they reported on, it was found in a comic book shop also and that's where some of the issue came but still it's just don't buy it you know it's not for you it's not for your kids don't buy it exactly like you know that's funny enough nowadays he could have had a patreon and (laughs) sold it that way or you know or a kickstarter or something yeah yeah all right now finally michael in this issue is a filler piece called the powers that be that sets out to prove that superpowers of certain comic book heroes do exist in nature that is to say there are animals and insects throughout the world that have super strength and super speed and super senses but it feels like an educational article that would be in one of those kids magazines of the 90s because it's technically about superheroes it has like images from panels but then it's over nature photos of these creatures of of the world but honestly it has more in common with ranger rick than rocket raccoon i don't know why they decided to publish this but the only fun thing i'll say is that the opening two-page photo image for the article it shows uh one of the image staffers dressed up as a burglar with the little mask and he's like the the hamburglar yeah exactly And then he's in the wizard warehouse and up on the top of the racks is this guy in an 89 Batman costume and he's crouching, but as you can tell, it's just one of the nerdy staff members, you know, but it's a, it's actually a very fun photo. And the funny thing is I checked in with Brian Cunningham just to see, Hey, who was in costume over there? And Batman is their indie comics reviewer, Tom Palmer Jr. Who is also, you know, the assistant editor of toy fair at this time. So that's really cool. And the burglar is being played by Glenn Portman, who he said is credited with his former name of Glenn Haight. So thanks for that insight there, Brian. Speaking of Batman 89, though, Michael, Michael Keaton is back in the Batsuit this summer. So let's see what other actors were donning their rubber armor in 1997 with Heroes in Motion. Yeah.
Adam and I are recording our 90 Super Cinema review of Spawn for Patreon last night. And in this issue, the producer of the film, Clint Goldman, is already predicting a sequel. <laughs> Little does he know. And he says, it's going to happen. We are going to have a sequel. I'd be surprised if this movie didn't do a hundred million. I'm saying this because I've seen the film with an audience. Men in Black was fun, but at the end, people weren't cheering. At the end of Spawn, there was a hellacious cheer. Hellacious, really? Hellacious, baby, yeah. Are you you sure? Of course we know this sequel never happens, but the film does make nearly $90 at the box office, so Goldman wasn't too far off, but yeah. I don't know. He I mean, seems... judging by what everybody says whenever you bring it up, I don't think it was a hellacious cheer. I think it was hellacious groaning and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's CGI. It hurts. Oh, it hurts. Or, or hellacious cheers that it was over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next up here, it's reported that Stan Lee will have a cameo as a policeman in the Blade movie and a S.H.I.E.L.D. communications officer in the David Hasselhoff Nick Fury TV movie. The Hoff says of Lee visit to the set quote he really is spider-man he kept flying up and down the stairs i kept having to tell him no you cannot play nick fury of his chance to get in front of the camera lee remarks quote i love it to me acting is the most fun in the world do you have a favorite stanley cameo michael like when you think over all the years he had so many is it in Guardians 2 when he's got like the long hair in the car? He's the hippie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do like that one. And I like the one in one of the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies where he's like in the window and he's sort of like yelling yeah. at <laughs> Those two I really like. The one, it's kind of goofy, but I like it because it's not trying to do a joke. I think it's Spider-Man 3. I can't remember. Spider-Man 2 or 3, but it's just where he walks up to Tobey Maguire and he sees, you know, Spider-Man on the screen or whatever. He's like, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. Like, I don't know. Like, that was just so sweet. Just feels like a Stanley moment. So I like that one. You know what I also really like? Just think about this and you might laugh, but in the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, when young Matt Murdock stops him from crossing the street, he doesn't even to say anything. It's just like the kid saves his life. And I just sort of like like that moment. You just it's a blink and you miss it sort of cameo, but that one's pretty good too. Yeah, but that's I think perfect. That, yeah. Now, speaking of David Hasselhoff, there's also a special report profile on Hasselhoff as Nick Fury in this issue. And the Hoff is in full soundbite mode because he's saying stuff like, quote, he's the last of the great American heroes. He's John Wayne, Sean Connery, and Kirk Douglas. This is a darker Nick Fury than the one the comic book presents. This is an adult hero. A lot of adults know who he is. Our challenge now is to get the kids into who Nick Fury is. I came on board because of the script. Then I went out and got the comic books and really got jazzed. I'm very excited about this. I believe in the character and the franchise. Unfortunately, there is no franchise because nobody else was excited. And the planned, you know, Nick Fury movie contract of five telefilms that he was signed on for, that never gets acted on. You know, that's uh, still out there. Maybe they could still call him into action. But Wow, I wonder if, like... Hasselhoff got some money even though they didn't make those shows. It'd be nice. Knowing him, he probably had that at like, hey, whether make it or not, I'm going to get paid somehow. He's a savvy dude. Yeah. Did you you ever watch that Nick Fury show? 
I watched like the first probably 15 minutes uh, years ago, like on YouTube. I don't even think it's on YouTube anymore. It might still be, but like I remember watching it. And I was just like, the tone of this is not right. Generation X was so far in a crazy direction that I was like, I like this. But this one's like trying to be cool. And you're like, no, he's not. Like they made it look silly. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. But speaking of the Hoff, once more, they just, they are getting all they can out of him. The <laughs> Ultraverse may have been dead in print by 1997 after Marvel bought it, but Malibu's Nightman is now getting his live action syndicated TV series from the creator of Magnum P.I. And it stars David Hasselhoff's stunt double from Knight Rider in his first time out as a leading role. In fact, the Hoff apparently makes a cameo in the pilot episode and says the former Michael Knight, quote, I did it as a favor to Glenn Larson. Without Glenn, there would have been no Knight Rider. Without Knight Rider, there wouldn't have been a Baywatch. So I owe my career to Glenn Larson. <laughs> so the, you have to decide what's more important, that, wow. that Knight Rider existed or that Baywatch existed. <laughs> now, Michael, this is kind of a loaded question. Of all the Ultraverse characters, which would you have chosen to get a live action TV series instead of Nightman? Because I know you're up on the Ultraverse from all the years of doing the podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm deep in it. I'm real deep. Well, I mean, Adam Warlock was an Ultraverse character. Well, that was, yeah, Marvel bought it. And then they put all these Marvel characters into the universe. Loki was there. And, you know, yeah, but I, that doesn't count. I'm saying like of the original run of Malibu launching the Ultraverse. So, you know, you have like oh, Prime, wh- you have Prototype, you have, I, I see your face. So this is starting to jog some memories here. You have Hard Case. You have... Oh, Hard Case. I like him. I yeah? like Hard Case. I know that character. Yeah. Okay. That one's okay. That would be interesting. I, I'd buy Hard well, Case. Well, he would work because he's like actually like making movies. He's like a celebrity superhero. So that would be an interesting take. I don't know. I think the most thought-provoking would have been to do the mantra series, you know, because there's a guy and a woman's body. There's a lot of comedy to be had there, but there's a lot of social commentary to be made. So I don't know. I, I feel like that would have made a really interesting series if they had gone that way, especially since, you know, we saw it so many times on Quantum Leap. I think mm-hmm. audiences would have still accepted it even in the 90s. You know what's funny about that, though? Like, I think also the reason why it works so well with Quantum Leap is because Scott Bakula is so charming. Like, he's likable no matter what he's doing. And so, like, you you buy into that journey and you sort of go with it. You'd have to really cast the right person that people would buy into. That's That's for sure. Martial arts B-movie star Cynthia Rothrock is launching her own comic book called Sin, C-Y-N, through... Draculina publishing. Draculina? Is that Vampirella's like main nemesis? Draculina. (laughs) Who comes up with this stuff? When asked about the current crop of comics being published, Rothrock exclaimed, they're amazing. They blow the old ones away with characters like Spawn. They make me want to go out and get all the new comics and read them. (laughs) Sure you do. Yeah. She is also enthusiastic about playing a comic book character on screen. That's on the top of my list. Anybody got a character out there? I've always wanted to do that. Isn't that hilarious? She's just like, that. yeah, it's top of my list. Is there a character I could play? I'll take anything. Just you, come on. <laughs> do you know who this person is? This Cynthia Ra- Rothrock? Oh, yeah. Oh, she, she did a ton of, of these martial arts movies, like where she was just like the star. She was, she was like the female Van Damme, you know, like that was her thing at the time. And what's funny, Michael, we've been having this running gag of O'Brien's 
Her mm-hmm. big movie, one of them is called China O'Brien. That was no. her character. So the, what is with all the O'Briens in issue 74 of Wizard? <laughs> That's funny. I'm I'm Googling this lady right now. I have yeah. no idea who she is. You've never seen her before? Oh, she would always play like at those like, you know, midnight movies that they would play like on network TV at like one in the morning type thing. Like they would always play her her stuff. So Cynthia Rothrock, I got to ask you, Michael, if you're, you're seeing her now. Who would you cast her as? What butt-kicking female character from comics would you put her in the role of? Comics or um, can I use a video game? I guess you can choose a video game. She wants comics, though. That's what she's calling out for here. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I I see her as either Sonya Blade oh. or like, um, what's her name from, from Street Fighter? Oh, uh, yeah, Cammy. Yeah. Although I think, and I bet she would have been considered, but I think she was just a little too old by the Mm. time those movies came out. A lot of her pictures that I'm seeing of her, she has short hair. If she wouldn't mind dying at red, I could see her playing like Black Widow. Yeah, Wade, I was going to suggest, but I thought you might like take offense to this, but I I was going to say if she played Black Canary, she might be good in that role too. I could buy that. Sure. Okay. It's just because you haven't seen her act yet. That's why. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> She's it great at martial be, arts. It must be fantastic. <laughs> oh, all right, Michael. Uh, the buzz box of this issue reports that Kevin Smith of Clerks fame is rumored to be writing some comics for release in 1998. It's suggested that it might be an Ash miniseries for event comics owned by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti as buddies who had cameos in Chasing Amy, or possibly a Martian Manhunter one-shot for DC. But of course, we know it ultimately ends up being Daredevil, Green Arrow, eventually Batman, a severely delayed couple of issues of Batman. But Michael, speaking of the Caped Crusader. To close out this segment, we're going to explore the Wizard Staff casting call suggestions to reboot the Batman franchise and make the character a box office hero once again. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to read this intro here because they go for it. They said, okay, who thought Batman and Robin really sucked? You're not alone, and here's why. Too many characters. There are nine central characters each vying to unload their excessive baggage. Embarrassingly cliche dialogue. Everybody chill. (laughs) Choppy (laughs) editing. Did Poison Ivy have to blow her hypnodust a billion times in a five-minute period? Garishly distracting sets and costumes. Poison Ivy and Bane wearing inane gorilla suits flanked by erotic dancers at a fundraiser insulting campy plot points the origin of batgirl is alfred gives her a disc with all of batman's secrets and poor <laughs> casting sorry george clooney just doesn't cut it as the smirking batman we think comic fans have endured enough of hollywood's dark knight detective so much so we're gonna pretend we're buying the license to make movies starting from scratch to do the job right and it starts with recasting everybody and then coming up with stories to fit bat baddies old and new so grab your popcorn and utility belt here's our take on the perfect bat franchise i'll take it away all right so for batman we get long island's own alec bowen <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to play bruce wayne i think it would be great <laughs> you need a wasp to play this role alec baldwin is not only looks the part of playboy bruce wayne but also has the intensity and gravelly voice to play the vigilante that'll scare the piss out of you <laughs> He's from Massapequa. Joker, you little pig. Believe me, Massapequa's not waspy. He may be one, but he's... (laughs) Eric Bowen. (laughs) 
All right. Now, I loved him in the shadow. I think he could have played a nice Batman. I think it would have worked. Yeah, I I, I, I good too. I agree. I'm just, yeah. I'm just joking around. <laughs> yeah. But for Robin, they're just going kind of for an unknown who's a 14-year-old actor at this time. They are saying somebody named Kyle Gibson from TV's Nick Freno, licensed teacher. What the heck is that show? I know like every 90s TV show and I've never heard of Nick Freno. But you got like Jonathan TV. Taylor Thomas out there. Like, yeah. <laughs> You get every every girl in the world at this time. Yeah, I mean, that is insane to me. Like whoever this kid is, I don't know. I'll have to find an episode and see. <laughs> so for Nightwing, they have actor Jason Gedrick of Mur- they put Murder One above Iron Eagle. He's he's <laughs> Iron Eagle. That's what he is. He may even be a little bit old at this point to play yeah. Dick Grayson my opinion, uh, is a pretty boy like Dick Grayson, but looks like he also has the mileage to play a former Robin. I don't know. I don't know. You know, honestly, the older brother from Boy Meets World. You want Will Friedle, the voice of Terry from Batman yes. Beyond? Okay. Yes, he'd be great as Nightwing. I feel like Will Friedle is like our most suggested actor. We just want him <laughs> in a superhero movie in the just 90s. Put him in all the things. All right, for Alfred, this is fantastic. They want Anthony Hopkins because, yes, that would be pretty great. It would be very great. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? Man, he wouldn't have enough screen time. That's the only problem. Yeah. So for Batgirl, they have Robin Lively, uh, who has proven to, to be a bright and bubbly with a strange curiosity from The Karate Kid Part 3. Again, I think she'd be a little bit old. I guess, but I think that's the point is like they're saying like, you know, Barbara and Dick are now adults and they've been adults for a while. So they're playing like, you know, current continuity. And I think she'd be great. We've all seen Teen Witch, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Not, yeah. How could we not? Top that. All right. Uh, next up here for Commissioner Gordon, they want John Mahoney from Frasier, your favorite guy. That's oh, the I dad from Frasier. But he's also the dad from striking distance with bruce willis i know you always bring that up you love yes, that movie so i love much. that movie so <sighs> much that movie is everything <laughs> all right let's get into the rogues gallery here wow he still wants to play the joker willem dafoe like it just why it's... why hasn't it happened yet Dude, he hasn't even voiced the character for no. god's sakes like like i don't understand this it's a home run all the way even 25 years ago crazy yeah. I mean, he got to be Green Goblin. It doesn't mean he can't still play the Joker. Right. I think yeah. so. Uh, for the Penguin, they want Joe Pesci, which I like that take. I mean, we just we just got the Batman take, which had a little bit more, you know, kind of edge. Mob, a little bit more mobster. Yeah. yeah. So go for it. I'd be okay with that. For Catwoman, they've got B-movie queen Julie Strain. Really? Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Of, of all the Hollywood actresses you could come up with, that's the best you could do. Like you just said, Joe Pesci, Marissa Tomei, or bring back Michelle Pfeiffer for God's sakes. Like, yeah, it's interesting. She was married to Kevin Eastman at this time, so one of the creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And uh, I remember her best. Nobody's going to remember this except for our buddy uh, Steven Sapellis. Shout out in the late '90s. Yeah, late '90s. The Monkees had a reunion special on TV and they had released a new album and all this stuff. And I taped it. And one of those they had was a music video and she was the main like central figure of the 
music video and they're all like hitting on her in the video and she's just like you know <laughs> giving them attitude so julie strain is always connected to the monkeys in my mind uh but for two-face I think this is hilarious. Not a stretch either. No, in life and on the screen. Yeah, they want Mel Gibson because he had just been in Man Without a Face where he literally had one side of his face scarred. But it's funny. The makeup in Man Without a Face is far better than the makeup of Two-Face in (laughs) Batman Forever. So for the Riddler, I don't know if I agree with this. Even though I do see where they're coming from, they're suggesting... Kevin Spacey, who's recently off of The Usual Suspects, which is a phenomenal movie, one of my favorites of all time. But I don't think he has that that thing. The, the Riddler needs to be cunning, but also be sort of like, like witty. And I don't know if Kevin Spacey at this time was witty. I mean, do you think it would be too much of a stretch for someone like Kevin Klein to play the Riddler? Because he could play like kind of weird and heightened, but he also could have a little bit of gravitas. I don't know. Kevin Klein's interesting. I I was thinking more of, what's his name from Shawshank Redemption? Don't do it. (laughs) We don't need him in this movie. Everybody loves that Shawshank Redemption. He's already married to uh, Susan Sarandon. We don't need to (laughs) give him this role too. Oh, come I, on. Tim Robbins? He would have been Robinson great. Robbins and Howard the Duck is fine, but I don't need him in this comic <laughs> book movie. Howard the Duck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Poison Ivy, though. Julia Roberts as Poison Ivy? I don't know. I, I was kind of already over Julia Roberts at this point in time, so I don't know if I would have... because she has red hair. That's why. I know, but it's it's just like, she's like almost like identical to Uma Thurman, I feel like. She would like play it the same way, probably, so just be like, eh. Like, I would see almost maybe... Gwyneth Paltrow. Ooh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I like that. Go with Gwyneth. So for Mr. Freeze, also could have been Alfred, <laughs> Patrick Stewart. Like yeah. every bald character, make it Patrick Stewart. But I I would say uh if you guys are not watching Picard season three, by the way, if you don't have Paramount Plus, I hear it's, it's awesome. phenomenal. It's I hear really it's phenomenal. Good. Yeah. For Bane, they want Steve McMichael, who is uh, entering WCW as a wrestler at this point. He was a former uh, NFL star. He definitely has more attitude. I don't think he could act, but he definitely has a better attitude than, you know, just the grunting that they had the other Bane do in the movie. So, you know what I would have liked? If you want to go with the wrestler, Razor Ramon. Ooh, I mean, <laughs> he's not really, you know, Latin, but uh, he, we know he could do the accent. So, but he could be big. Like he, he'd make himself big. Yeah, Scott <laughs> Hall could do it. <laughs> could you imagine Razor Ramon? Well, and speaking of wrestlers, though, for Killer Croc, I do not know what's going on here. They want Buff Bagwell from <laughs> WCW. Who a buff's got the stuff, guys, but he does not have the stuff to be Killer Croc. In fact, this is a weird connection, and maybe they were watching the movies in the Wizard Office. There is a movie that Julie Strain is in, and Buff Bagwell is in it also. They, and he he plays a like some like wrestling hitman assassin character. Like, it's really weird. I used to own it on VHS. I bought it way, way back when at a, a store that was going out of business, and I was just like, "What in the world?" So that's crazy. I have to point out though. The art they chose for both Killer Croc and Scarecrow couldn't be worse. And they're in the same pose, and it's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. For the Scarecrow, they have Jeff Goldblum. That would be good. I'd be okay with that. I, yeah, I could, I could see that for sure. I could, see, I mean, we've seen him in the fly get dark, right? So we know he yeah. can do it. 
Uh, finally, for Raz al Ghul, or Raish al Ghul, for all you fancy pantses, John Malkovich, and yeah... John Malkovich. He's not old enough at this point, but I'm sure he could play it uh, as old as he needs to. But I think most of their casting is spot on here, like 75%. They did a pretty I'd, good I'd, job. I'd give a solid two thirds. You know, yeah. if, I, if, if I had to grade this, I'd give it a, a B minus. Better than most. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> the teacher has spoken. Yes. Uh, well, now, now go listen to some jerky boys for extra credit. Oh, man. <laughs> Fantastic. But hey, you know, they were taking pot shots at the Hollywood machine, but we are going to rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. All right. It's rumored that Todd McFarlane was seen meeting with Marvel staffers at San Diego Comic-Con, though no details have been released as to what might be in the works. But as it turns out, obviously nothing. McFarlane does do does not do anything with Marvel ever except for like one variant cover. But McFarlane does reveal that due to production issues, further releases of his Kiss Ultra action figures will no longer be packed with the individual letters that when combined spell out the name of the band, but instead will include a miniature record album replica of each of the four members' 1978 solo albums. Now, I have both versions of these action figures in my collection, but I had no idea why that change was made. Until all these decades later, I finally read it here. They just couldn't make the letters correctly anymore. Like, that's weird. <laughs> but I was just like, okay, I got to buy an another set now. <laughs> Aside from ranking Jim Lee number one on the hottest artist list this issue, he's dethroning Joe Matarera, by the way, the wizard staff also reports on how they harassed the owner of Wildstorm at San Diego Comic-Con, as reported in the bullpen section here. So this is something they had done before, as they tell us here. So it says... Last year at the San Diego Comic-Con, we stole Jim Lee's bathrobe and stuck him with the hotel tab. This year, we did it again. Although it was a tad harder. Here's how it went down. Two of Wizard's staff writers of the Big Cheese himself, Garib Seamus, bypassed the security guard who was ushering people away from a recently ended party, made it into Jim's two-story room, and went to work. As Garib chewed the fat, Reed distracted Jim Lee. Jim McLaughlin searched the bathroom and Buddy Scalera the bedroom, turning up nothing. Zilch, zero, nada, no bathrobe. Refusing defeat, Garib called down to room service, pretended to be Lee, ordered up a bathrobe, and waited. When the bell rang, Buddy once again distracted Lee. Garib answered the door, got the robe, passed it to Jim, who stuffed it in a backpack he brought along just for the occasion, and the three hightailed it out of there. Ha ha, wizard two, Jim Lee zero. Garib Sheamus even got in on this prank. That's what I can't believe. And just, you know, the Jim that shoved it in the backpack, Jim McLaughlin. They should have been more clear on that one. Jim Lee just grabbed it and then put it in his backpack? No. <laughs> but I just think that's hilarious. They're like, we're going to steal his bathrobe every year. <laughs> Those little rascals. <laughs> All right. So, as we get to our final tally, in this issue, Jim Lee was mentioned nine times, Todd McFarlane just five, which brings our running total to Jim Lee 439 mentions, Todd McFarlane 424. Oof. Oh, there you go, Michael. You know, we heard all about the fun that they were having at the convention, but there's always a lot of merch being passed around there, and they were adding to the craziness, which means it's time for Merch Madness. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? 
In toy news, Kenner is releasing a new wave of Batman Legends of the Dark Knight figures that included villains like Man Bat, the Penguin, the Mad Hatter, plus underwater assault Batman and the ridiculous looking Jungle Range Robin. And I'm looking at this Jungle Range Robin figure. It is Horrible. It looks it like it belongs like as part of like the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves uh, action figures, or like it's like the Endor costumes that the Star Wars characters wore. It's bad. <laughs> it looks like he's wearing like the Spectre's cape. Yeah, it's, it's just, weird. It's not good. The underwater assault Batman isn't that great either. No, they, they were. They'd already done that like way back in the early nineties. There was that yeah. Batman with like the, the bright yellow neon. Oh, that's the best one. Yeah. I love that one. I still have that figure. <laughs> Meanwhile, it, as we go, get into more toy news here, Michael, Mike Allred's Madman is getting a series of fully articulated eight-inch action figures produced by Graffiti Designs, which includes accessories like his signature disc gun, his yo-yo a jetpack and an alternate head with a helmet and goggles now eventually there is a black costume figure that's released with his yellow lightning bolt and even a maskless toy fair exclusive figure that was a mail away offer from uh, the magazine so i was lucky enough to pick up a full set of these figures at retrocon two years ago i'm going again this year so who knows what i'll find but i I was so excited because i saw them for years and years in the comic book store and i never bought them and to finally get them all for so cheap uh, i was very happy Toy Biz is producing Blade action figures to coincide with the release of the very popular film of 1998, as well as figures from the not-so-popular Cull the Conqueror movie starring Kevin Sorbo. Oh, boy. Which I own on VHS for some reason. Of course you do. (laughs) Of course you do. Wizard points out their disappointment that there will be no figure based on the villainess in the film played by Tia Carrera. Also in production are Street Fighter vs. X-Men 2-packs based on the popular Capcom arcade game. These figures include Ryu vs. Magneto, Cyclops vs. M. Bison, Wolverine vs. Akuma, and Ken vs. Sabretooth. I gotta say, like, those are... It's very dude heavy. It's a sausage party over there with the Street Fighter versus X-Men. We could get a Rogue versus Cammy two pack at least. Like those are like the at least Rogue ver- or Psy- no, Psylocke versus Chun-Li. That would have been perfect. Man, I can't believe they didn't do that. They, those would have sold through the roof. Those would have sold better than all the other ones combined. Yeah, like nobody really cares about M. Bison or Cyclops for that matter. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a rough one. Yeah. Although oh, Ken and Sabretooth, I think would, would have been the peg warmer though. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would. But I didn't. Too. I didn't know there were Blade action figures for the movie. I had no idea about that either. Definitely yeah. did not. I would love a Blade and a Steven Dorff finger. <laughs> you imagine? Like, look at this. I know and, they, they exist. You know, Whistler is a little bit bigger than he looks like in, in the movie for sure. He's a little, <laughs> a little bit more muscular. I know it looks like he's played by uh, you know big sexy Kevin Nash, sick of a WCW. <laughs> But in trading card news, Lear Skybox, formerly owned by Marvel, is now owned by Chase Manhattan, (laughs) possibly due to the bankruptcy settlements for the company. It doesn't say that outright, but I have to believe it. Like, (laughs) the bank's like, we're taking this from you now. Yes, we own this now. Uh, it's reported, however, that Fleer Skybox still controls the Marvel license for producing trading cards and will be releasing a set called Spider-Man Premium 97, which contains nine different nine-card sets detailing the evolution of comic art using white on black, pencil sketches, 
ink drawings, old-time comic styling, uh, airbrush art, and a photographic painted hybrid piece. Like, I would really love to see these cards because I don't understand what any of those mean, my, minus the pencil sketches, you know? Like, what, what are they trying to, to tell us? Yeah. But there are also 2,000 sketch autograph cards that are being randomly inserted featuring art and signatures from Joe Kubert, Mike Diodato Jr., John Romita Sr., and Mike Waringo. Now, it's also announced, and this is hilarious, that Fleer Skybox has canceled their planned trading card series based on the Shaquille O'Neal Steel movie, likely because they knew that once everybody saw the movie, they would not be buying any trading cards. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy. But finally, acclaimed comics hero-turned-video-game icon Turok Dinosaur Hunter is getting an action figure line from Playmates. But more importantly, when I say his name... That means it's time for Turok's Top 10. Oh, yeah. Booyah. I miss these. I've done this in a while. Alrighty. So this time, Wizards Top 10 list is the top 10 dark side rejected ideas before going with that whole hokey Genesis plan. Wow. So you really had to be reading that Genesis series that John Byrne was writing at this time at DC to get this. But the jokes are pretty universal. They couldn't have just said like the anti-life equation or something like that. Like people know what that is. So, yeah. yeah that, that's a lot going on there and try to wrap your head around. So number 10, dig a big hole, throw in Sovereign 7, Phil. <laughs> Michael, do you even know Sovereign 7? No. That was Chris Claremont's creator-owned book published by DC. He did it for like two or three years, and it never got popular. <laughs> but they just kept letting him. They're like, maybe it'll catch on. Never did. They could have just used Shaman's Tears. I would have got that one. <laughs> uh, number nine, a secret device that holds fluid. Keeping hot liquids hot and cold liquids cold. Okay. <laughs> Igloo. <laughs> Number eight, Revelations. Ha, get it? I don't. Is Was that the name of a crossover? I don't I don't get it. But he, but he, I don't know. Seven, to start anew. But then he realized Genesis sounded better. So just what Genesis means, I, I guess. Okay, you're losing us, but get us back, wizard. Come on. Susudio? I don't know. <laughs> Number six, go back in time and assimilate the Earth before the Federation is formed. Okay, now Doug Goldstein is just inserting his own Star Trek jokes into this list. That's what is happening there. Number five, Pulp Heroes Annuals. Yeah! Now, I can't tell if they are mocking it because they think it's a stupid idea or if they actually are excited. They're like, yeah, it should have been the pulp. Because you you remember those painted covers, right? Yeah, they were course, awesome. Yeah. Everybody loved yeah. those. Yeah. Uh Number four, get a role in the Star Wars prequels, but then he realized Dark Side is spelled differently. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's pretty good, though. If he was watching it and he thinks Darth Vader's talking oh, about hey. him. <laughs> you, you... I'm going to join the Dark Side. I am Dark Side. <laughs> yeah. Number three, buy Chicago Comic Con that broadcasts subliminal messages to all attendees, making them buy multiple copies of Wizard. No, you shouldn't read anything into this. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah. Number two, Bloodlines 2, 
the return. Now, do you get this one? Do you remember that Bloodlines crossover where, where Hitman was introduced and he was the only good thing to come out of it? Yes, yes. Okay. Because everything so else was cyber rats. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. And number one, uh, Dark Side's top 10 rejected ideas before going with that whole hokey Genesis plan. License out all the DC characters to ex-DC employees, relaunch their adventures in a pocket universe, and then bring them back into the mainstream, essentially relaunching the same characters twice in just under two years. Then vomit. <laughs> oh, take that, Marvel. Wow. Can you imagine Marvel advertising in the magazine ever again? That's wow. a dig. Oof. Yeah. They were rough, this issue, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, there you go, Michael. We made it. What? Wow. It was so good to have you back, dude. This was fun. It was fun. This was a good episode to come back to. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed this one. There's a lot of good stuff in here and a lot of... Cr- <laughs> that, that, that whole Florida thing was insane. I'm like... <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That got me. Um, you know, but listen, you know, everybody, thank you so much for listening and checking us out. If you're on Patreon, you'll get this uncut, uncensored the next day. So you'll get it right away. And you can also check out, and we have a lot of cool content on Patreon. We have our 90 Super Cinema, as Adam mentioned earlier. We have a bunch of really cool movies. We just did Spawn. We did The Phantom. We did Batman Forever. We're going to do some sort of comedy thing next month. We're going to either do The Mask or Mystery Men or meteor man or no blank Blank man Man. my favorite blank man so there's a lot of cool stuff there's also all the scans of all the issues you can check out all cool content we've got events coming up we're even going to be doing some sort of like a fantasy uh draft with with our patrons to be really really cool that's right michael and our patrons are definitely cool so we want to give them a shout out now that's another perk is that hey you get your name mentioned for being a supporter of wizards the podcast guide to comics so first up how about that fernando pinto jeremy daw hey man we love hearing from you, Greg Schuler, Melface Killa, Brian Acosta, Joe Marcello, Steve King, Mark Quill, Gabe Bustamantes, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Nikki Adjacent from the Retro Network, and of course, Mark McDonald. Ooh, do you want to add your name to the list? Get on over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics and get it done. But what else, Michael? You can also follow us on our social media on Twitter at, at- wizards comics on facebook at wizards comics and on instagram wizards underscore comics so please check us out give us a like go on itunes give us a subscribe whatever give us some feedback let us know what you think is there anything you want us to add things you're enjoying everybody's doing a wonderful job with that going into 2023 our downloads have just shot up guys it's crazy you're spreading the word we can't believe it we're so glad so many new folks are coming on board and going on the nostalgic ride with us so glad to have you of course get over to the youtube page as well subscribe over there we're doing haul videos we're gonna get back into our top 10 videos which we have a lot of fun with getting into the the history of wizard checking out your favorite covers and other we're looking at probably the next one being a top 10 batman covers i'm looking forward to that one this yeah this is a lot of those too And uh, be sure to come back for the mini episodes, our Wizard Half episode that will drop after this, because we're going to reveal to you who our special guests are going to be for our next episode 75, which is a great one. So we'll drop it over there. Make sure you check us out. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.